My name is Chris Lane. I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor with my wife, Fliss, and it's great to be here. And uh, yes, as Serena said, we're, um, we have been in a series called The Jesus Stories. Today will be the last of uh, one part of that, but uh, we've enjoyed preaching it, and, and uh, you, by all accounts, have enjoyed hearing it. So in the new year, uh, not, we've got one or two things we need to attend to, but we're going to revisit the preaching, uh, the, the, the stories of Jesus, and in particular, um, the, uh, the teachings of Jesus. I, you know, we've threaded through the stories and the signs and the wonders and the person asking the question, who is Jesus? But we're going to start looking at some of the teachings of Jesus. It's funny, you know, people often uh, say, you know, well, it's about the Ten Commandments, isn't it? You know, and love thy neighbor. And, and actually, everybody thinks they know about the teachings of Jesus. But very often, uh, actually, it's extraordinary how we, we are ignorant of them. Uh, we know everything around them and about them, but not actually the teachings themselves. Uh, you know, one of the things as I've been studying the Gospels that struck me time and time again is Jesus' sense of humor. In fact, I was talking to someone this week, and I described just in the flow of, of, of my sh sharing with that person, I just shared that, that God was the, the giggling God, the giggling God. Now, for many people, that's kind of offensive. It's actually not the way they see God. But I think the Lord, uh, you know, he gave us laughter that we might enjoy the creation and his relationship. And actually, God laughs at himself as much as he does our antics. I think that the Trinity have a right crack up sometimes. You know, Fliss and myself, we're still, uh, we're still foolish enough to, to just fall about hysterically. Usually in the bedroom, I, I don't know what that has to do with things, but, uh, but we usually crack up, what? For goodness sake, she says. Uh, it, it's not like that. What are you thinking? You. Nothing to do with that. It, it's, um, it, it, it's just, we, we just, the silliness of something or other, and we just start laughing hysterically. And I just love that, that we can be silly. It's good to be silly sometimes. We take ourselves far too seriously. And you know what? Hands up. Pastors and priests and vicars inevitably seem to take themselves far too seriously. Anybody agree with that? I hope I don't, anyway. So we're looking forward to that, the teachings of Jesus. And, uh, you know, I was very uh, struck by Mark's um, preach last week, as many of you were. Great preach. Thank you, Mark. And, you know, as part of my sort of giggling God thing, I also thought to myself, you know, there was no one, and there is no one, and there will be no one who can do a party like Jesus. There is going to be a party that will beat all parties ever. ever you know, it, 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 God has a party in mind, and he's excited about it. And the invitations are going out. God is, is the party in God. He has this incredible capacity to laugh and to know joy and to give joy and to embrace, embrace the love of life, the giver of life. At our prayer meeting during the week, we were talking about God as, and praying about the God of the, who is the giver of life. And as I was thinking about uh, God being the one who parties to the utmost, He's actually the God who does pain to the utmost too. There's none that can do a party like God. 
but there's none that does pain like God. And I thought, you know, because you, you start thinking about all that, and you think, well, what about the cross? You know, that wasn't much, much fun. And I suddenly realized that God carries intention, this capacity to live life to the full, but also to, to delve into the deepest of, of, of pain and, and to share that and to go deeper in that. And I realized something, a bit of self-revelation here, and I don't think I've ever shared this with anyone, but my reticence in the early days of my ministry about the pastoral element of, of what I do was that there was so much pain in my own life, my own stuff, that I did not believe, even in the face of God's great love, that I had the capacity to embrace anybody else's pain and to empathize and to pray through and work with. And I, you know, I've had to deal with that and I've had to live with that and work through that and repent of that. Because one of the things I've begun to realize as I've gone on with Jesus is that actually very often we shut down certain aspects of our life and we do that to our detriment. So we will, in order to protect ourselves because we may be like me, none a lot of pain, you know, we, we shut down those aspects. We kind of shut down the emotions. We, it doesn't, you know, we, we, we can deal with it because we internalize it. But, you know, if you do that, well, then you also do this. You also find you lose a capacity for joy. Even when things are going beautifully and when it's a glorious morning and you find that parking space that I often talk about, when it all happens like that, then it's kind of good. There's, there's no elation. You cannot, you cannot shut down one emotion and think it's just going to be in isolation. And as we, as we are made whole, you know, many of you just finished the Restore course, as you, have, as you are made whole, you increase your capacity in both extremes. You start dealing with your own stuff and the pain of that. It's hard work and it's painful dealing with our stuff and repenting and facing up to the, you know, the, the, the weaknesses and the, the tragedies and the disappointments in our life and the sin in our life. It's hard work dealing with all of that. But, it, but as you free up with that, you begin to giggle a little more. You begin to appreciate that sunny morning. You hear that robin that you've, that's lived in your, your shrub outside your house for, for years and you never even noticed. You see, we need to be made whole, and it's a balanced thing. We need to increase our capacity for pain and our ability to empathize with those who are hurting. That's what we do, church. But in that, we find that we have rediscovered what C.S. Lewis calls the emotion of heaven, joy. You cannot have one without the other. And part of the end of this little teach I'm going to do, this little preach, is going to be a challenge for you to repent of what is a very, a very honorable British characteristic. And I say British, I don't say English, British characteristic. And that's the capacity to sort of, you know, stoically tough it through, to not overreact, to not go overboard. We may have been like that all of our life, but have we inadvertently cut off something that God is wanting to give us? His extraordinary capacity to party and his extraordinary capacity for pain. Amen?
Amen. Okay, well, let's get into the preach. That was just by way of an introduction to the introduction. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to read a bit of two little blocks of scripture. Let's just follow the script. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, let's uh, just turn with me in your, de- your Bibles or your devices. It'll go on the screen to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. I want to recap on something, and it's not just for the sake of a recap. There is something I want to pull out of it, uh, which will set us up to some degree for what is about to come. And looking then at Luke 9, beginning at verse 18, this is a recap of the story when, you know, we said throughout the Jesus stories that uh, uh, Jesus, uh, Luke is really inviting us to ask the question, who is Jesus? And this is a moment, a breakthrough moment, spoke about it two or three weeks ago, where the disciples begin to get that Jesus is more than a wonder worker. And so, let's just read that again, Luke Eight, uh, sorry, Luke 9, beginning at base, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, breakthrough, revelation. 21, then Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone this. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead to life. And of course, in Matthew's account of this, uh, Matthew says, no, that's never going to happen. And Jesus gives him a slap, figuratively speaking. Or maybe he did, I don't know. And it was because... You know, Peter had God in a box, and Mark talked about that, and I've been talking about that. This is a season when we're inviting God to come and be himself here. Right, church? You know, we've all got ideas of who God is or isn't, but we want God, we want, will the real Jesus please stand up in this place? We want the real Jesus, not the one that we fabricated. And so, you know, Peter gets a slap. You know, get behind me, Satan. Pretty hard slap, too. I think I would have been really reeling for a while, probably taken, had to do three or four restore courses, you know. But anyway, get behind me, Satan, says Jesus. These things that you're thinking, Peter, are not what I'm about. Pay attention, listen up, you know. So anyway, uh, 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny him themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and this is what I particularly want you to catch, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Pardon? I missed that the first time around when I taught it a couple of weeks ago. But that is the first reference that we have in Luke's gospel where Jesus owns up and spells out what is to come and his role in it. Up until now, he's saying, who do you think I am? (laughs) Teacher, preacher, wonder worker, healer, cast out of demons and all this kind of stuff. Now in this moment of revelation when the the penny has finally dropped, albeit imperfectly, where they get this sense, this revelation of, of Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. He then goes on, he he pushes the boundaries. 
And he says, you will see the Son of Man. And of course, that was his favorite title for himself, a reference to a little passage in Daniel. You will see the Son of Man coming in glory with holy angels. And that's what we're looking forward to. That is still to come. Now, what, what will the disciples have made of that? Whoa! You know, in John's Gospel, and Mark was preaching out of John's Gospel last week, John has this kind of literary device, which, which, is, which is just the way he constructs the story, which makes it so compelling. It's, you know, Jesus says these outrageous things. You know, I've got time to go off into a whole preach about that. But he says things like, I'm the bread of life. And they go, yeah, yeah. And then he feeds 5,000. Oh, my gosh. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Yeah, really? Yep. Oh, dear. It's overdone it now. Lazarus, come out! Jesus says something, and then he does something. His words and his walk are one and the same. So he here breaks cover for a fleeting moment so that the disciples get a glimpse, and we get a glimpse of, you know, will the real Jesus stand up? Okay, that's all by way of introduction. Now, um, uh, I can't see because of who I've got on AV, but let me go on to Luke chapter 9, verse 28, please. So that's about three or four screens forward. We're going to read the following bit of uh, scripture, then I'll make a few comments out of that, and we'll, we will uh, proceed. So uh, Luke, this is the... The passage called the Transfiguration. Uh, that's as it's well known as. It's not a word that is in common parlance. To be transfigured is to be changed from one thing to another. It's to be, it's to be uh, something that has been revealed, is is uh, shown, is is modelled, is demonstrated, and that this passage is typically uh, called the Transfiguration. Uh, I think I may have told you. Forgive me if you've heard this story before. But my father, when I was growing up was head of auditions for the BBC. And uh, that, was, that was a role. He was uh, second in command, if you like, in the whole of the light entertainment uh, division of the BBC. And this was in the 60s. My father died in the mid-60s. And uh, in the, the 60s were the heyday of light entertainment in the BBC. And many, many uh, people who were household names then, and still to some degree, some people remember them, were, were the, 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 the real stars. And it was all about Saturdays and Saturday night, a good time out. And there was no X Factor or anything like that, or movies weren't shown as a rule. There were lots of variety shows. And my father used to scour the country for people who, who you know, because the, the, the BBC had this insatiable appetite for new talent. And uh, so he, he discovered many people who became household names. Now, I knew as a kid that that's what my dad did. And, you know, when I was asked at school, what does your dad do? He says, I used to say, he works for the BBC. Well, as I said, I think, before, one day during the holidays, my father said to me, would you like to come to work with me today? It's like a fairly easy day, and Mum's busy. Would you like to come with me? I said, can I? Really? Wow. So I went to Dad. To work, not, not sure what I was going to be doing other than playing with the stapler and the, <laughs> the typer, typing machine, no word processors. Anyway, we got up there and uh, it wasn't long. We were up, this is the old television centre on White Hart Lane. We went to the cafe for a coffee and we turned around this corner and there was Eric Morecambe and Ernie Wise. Does anybody know those guys? <laughs> and... Uh, 
you know, Eric says, hi, Ronnie, how are you? That was my dad. And then I walked past, uh, there was a, a new couple of comedians then, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Anybody remember those? Uh, we didn't bump into them, but... Anyway, to cut it short, you know, they were in the sort of... My father had a, was, went to the exec's dining, uh, dining room, and there were all these variety stars there. I remember Eric Sykes coming over and having a chat with my father. And I, um, he was very deaf. It was quite a difficult conversation, I recall. Things like that. And then I uh, bumped into uh, Chris, I think, I can't remember his name was, but he, he then, uh, there was the chap who, uh, one of the lead presenters for the uh, Blue Peter show. And he pulled out a badge and he gave me a Blue Peter badge. <laughs> you know, it was just a day that I obviously still remember now. But the point of mentioning it is that this was my dad. Most of the time, my dad was asleep in the armchair in the lounge. <laughs> he wasn't a sporty type. But suddenly, he was transfigured in my eyes. Went up to the, you know, this wonderful, it was a new build then, they've just pulled it down, but this wonderful television center, and he was hobnobbing it, and it was first name terms with all these, these guys, you know. And I was introduced to Billy Cotton, head of light entertainment. And this, this was just so huge for me as a nine-year-old kid. And my dad was never the same again in my eyes. He'd been transfigured. Now, this was Jesus. Yeah, he was a bit quirky, a bit strange. Had to watch. You're never quite sure what Jesus would do. But Jesus is breaking cover with his disciples. Yes, who am I? The Messiah. Bingo. And what's more, you will see me come in glory. Then it goes on in this little event called the Transfiguration. Verse 28 says, About a week, eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went, uh, excuse me, he went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. I'm going to pause there. His appearance changed. In Matthew's Gospel, it talks about, uh, well, I think I read it earlier on, didn't I? Uh, what's the place? In Matthew's account, it talks about his, his face was shining like the sun. There is an important clue, an important point there. Moses, and we're going to hear about him in a moment, when he used to go up the mountain to meet with God, would come down, or when he went to the tabernacle and came out having met with God, and his face was shining so much they had to put a veil over it. It was reflected glory. There was something about being in the presence of God that, that it made him sort of radioactive. And they were going, no, it's too bright. you know, And it's just incredible. But Matthew's description of Jesus' transfiguration or the change in his appearance is that he becomes bright, shining like the sun. Now, the sun is the source, the source of light in our universe. It's not reflected glory. The light was coming from Jesus. It wasn't shining. There wasn't a, you know, there wasn't a shaft of light that made him look sort of dazzlingly bright. It was coming from Jesus. Jesus was transfigured, was transformed. And what they saw in that moment was Jesus as he is. And then it says, it goes on to say this, 
Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. Now, that's reflected glory. Talking with Jesus. And they spoke about the departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Let's pause there. I found myself wondering this week, what was this about? Jesus knew where he was going. He said to the, he said to the disciples three times, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be beaten up, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be, you know, it's just going to, you know, it's going to I'm going to be whipped and all the rest of it, and I'm going to be crucified, and da-di-da-di-da. So what have Moses and Elijah got to add to that? Not a lot, I suspect. I believe, it's my theory, or maybe other people's theory believe it as well, but this was actually for the disciples. It wasn't for Jesus. He didn't need to have a... a, a a summit meeting, forgive the pun, to talk about the future. It was important that Peter, James, and John had really firmly fixed in their mind, their consciousness, who Jesus is. It would help them to see Jesus as he truly is. So anyway, it goes on, and this is where it gets a little interesting. Verse 32... Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Oh, man, you know, I am, oh, I am wanting to see the glory of God. I do not deny it. I want to see the glory of God in this place. I want to see it, the glory of God breaking out among us in terms of healings and, and deliverances and in our worship. And I want us to leave this place with incredible stories to tell, and I want you to come back with incredible stories of God showing up in his power and his glory. I'm praying for things we have not seen. I don't want to repeat what's happening at St. Paul's or Forest Town or KT or anything like that. That's great. I want God to do a new thing here, and I'm begging him to come in his glory and reveal himself here, that we might be encouraged and transformed so that we might be a better witness and make Christ known. That's what I want. They saw him in his glory. I want to see Jesus in his glory. And it goes on. Verse 33. As the men were leaving, uh, sorry, uh, Elijah, Moses and Elijah have appeared. Uh, read, I did read that, didn't I? As the men were leaving, Jesus, uh, Peter said to them, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know, in many versions, uh, that's the, the Greek for that is tabernacle, and tabernacle, of course, is, this, is a meeting place, a religious meeting place. It's a place, of course, where the Jews, uh, they built it upon uh, God's instructions to, uh, to, to house his presence when in the desert. It, it, it really means... It actually, can I say this? It actually means let's put God in a box. Let's build a box for you and put you in the box. It's just crazy. You see, the whole gamut of salvation history, and Den would sort of love this, you know, it begins with God apparently nowhere, but actually everywhere, and then he confines himself to the tabernacle, the tent in the desert where he meets with his people, and then later on after the... You know, after lots of adventures, they build a temple in Jerusalem. And so he's in his temple. 
then that gets destroyed, and then God starts kind of meeting with his people in the synagogue, which is a small group of meeting place, sort of 60, 70 people, sometimes a few more. And then after Jesus comes, you know, it's no longer, it's the temple still an important thing, but, but actually the most important thing is the presence of Jesus. It's not about the temple. It's not like, it's not, you know, this, isn't, this, this building is a tool, it's, as we've always said. It's not, a, it's not a tabernacle, but it is a place where it's holy because you make it holy. Why? Because when we come together, the presence of Jesus is here. And that's why I'm expecting more of him, not in a disrespectful way, but if Jesus is in our midst and if we are passionate about him revealing himself and him being himself, we will experience more of him. And I'm not shying away from those experiences because I want to embrace both the experience that are exciting and good as well as the pain that's, that's difficult. So, yeah, no, Peter, sorry, you got it wrong. We're not building a tabernacle and turning this into some kind of a pilgrimage place. Moses and Elijah are not going to hang out here, and I'm not going to hang out here at the top of this mountain. Anyway, verse 34, while he was speaking, while Peter was speaking, and it says he did not know what he was saying, he hadn't really thought it through. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Again, another interesting thing. In the desert, the cloud used to come down on the top of the mountain, and the people were told, uh, you know, Moses was told, do not let the people so much as touch the foot of the mountain or they'll die. Stand back and watch. Something is changing. They're up the mountain now, and the glory of God, the cloud, is descending upon them. Oh, my God. Gosh, we're getting closer, folks. We're getting closer. And it says here, it says here, a voice came from the clouds saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. A divine affirmation of this extraordinary experience that the disciples have just been on. God himself speaks out of this glory which is settling upon them. It says, this is my son whom I have spoken. Uh, just absolutely incredible. Verse 36, when the voice had spoken, they found themselves with Jesus alone. And the disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Cloud lifts away. There they are on the mountain. It's just James and John and Peter and Jesus. No Elijah, no Moses. What was that? But there's something here that we just need to note before we finish. Not time to read the story. They come down off the mountain, and the other disciples are embroiled in a particularly messy, ugly deliverance. Well, you can read the story yourself, but it, it, at one point, Jesus is heard to say, what is the matter with you guys? How long have I got to put up with you? And then he deals with the demon and all the rest of it. I love this. Jesus has just, and the guys have just had this extraordinary mountaintop experience. But in the next breath, they're up to their fetlocks in it, is that, where's a fetlock? I have to ask Andy, he's got some horses. That's horses and their ankles, isn't it, or something? They're right mired in. Moses and Elijah have visited and gone. 
Jesus has come and he stays. Our God is the God who stays with us. And we're going to be exploring this in our Christmas theme, The Visitors. But I want to say to you now, there was another reason why Jesus came down from that hill, that mountain. And that was because he had to ascend another hill. And not a glorious one this time. But one that was full of pain. That was full of agony. Even despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the hill that Jesus came down off the mountain of transfiguration to go to. And why did he do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. I would challenge you as I invite the band to come back up. Guys, you may have been wonderfully reserved. You may have been... You know, I hope that I'm a sort of fairly level guy now. Certainly when I was a younger guy, I was pretty sort of hot-headed and all the rest of it. Although I am capable of being hot-headed now, as some of my staff will tell you. But I kind of got a handle on myself, and that's good. But God forbid that I should exclude from my experience of the living God either things that are painful and difficult but through which will hone me and discipline me and teach me something more about the grace and the mercy of God or for that matter at the other end of the scale things that are glorious and wonderful things that actually as Peter, James and John did they didn't dare share until at some later date because it was just too wonderful for words. I want to be balanced as God sees balance. I want to embrace everything that he has me has for me because I want the real Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Father God, I just want to say thank you to you. And we said again, we've been saying it a little bit recently, we're going to keep praying it. Father, we want you to be yourself here. And I'm sure, Lord God, as you reveal yourself and you are revealing yourself as you continue to take us on that journey, there'll be things that will delight us and things that will frighten us and appall us maybe, but it's okay. It's okay, Lord God. You be yourself. We'd rather you be yourself than something of our own construct. So, Lord, would you please come and would you visit us? Would you stay with us? And, Lord God, would you transform us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.